I received uh, this last week uh, in the mail um, the magazine that is published by our denominational seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary, and in that magazine, it's a quarterly piece, uh, there was an article that I wish I had written. I'd love just to read it, uh, but I'm not going to do that. But I will tell you that much of what I'm going to share with you this evening as I reflect upon the coming of Christ into the world and the significance of the coming of Christ into the world, much of it is articulated in this wonderful article. Uh, And it begins with an interesting exchange. I'm not much into uh, bumper sticker theology and I'm not much into billboard theology and I'm not much into marquee theology, you know those sayings that you see on marquees roundabout. Um, But this little exchange was actually an exchange between marquees, although I'm sure there was a human element behind it. I doubt that these words just appeared on these marquees that happened to be across the street from each other. And maybe you're familiar with this, maybe you've heard it. It is is fictitious. To my knowledge, it didn't really happen, but this is the little exchange. I love this. And I love this because, as many of you, I had the best dog in the world. So the exchange begins in this way. All dogs go to heaven. And that was posted by Our Lady of Martyrs Catholic Church. The response from Beulah Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Only humans go to heaven. Read the Bible. Catholic Church. God loves all his creation, dogs included. Presbyterian Church. Dogs don't have souls. This is not open for debate. Catholic Church. Catholic dogs go to heaven. (laughs) Presbyterian dogs can talk to their pastor. Friendly exchange. Friendly exchange. Presbyterian Church. Converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. Catholic Church. Free dog souls with conversion. Presbyterian Church. Dogs are animals. There aren't any rocks in heaven either. Catholic Church. All rocks go to heaven. And then the pastor who wrote this article and who is a minister in good standing in the Presbyterian Church in America, to my knowledge, he's not been prosecuted for having printed what he printed in this article. The pastor who wrote this writes this, although I am a committed Presbyterian, Our Lady of Martyrs Catholic Church wins this word battle hands down. Maybe not all rocks go to heaven, but God's mission of redemption is not limited to that which has a soul. That is, we humans. In fact, Scripture points to a cosmic redemption, the scope of which is as wide as the scope of the creation. Now, what does all this have to do with Christmas? Well, it has everything to do with Christmas. It has everything to do with Christmas because Christmas does celebrate an advent, doesn't it? We celebrate 
the advent of Jesus. We celebrate his first coming into the world. What we celebrate at Christmas, what we celebrate in Advent is an incarnation, right? We celebrate an incarnation. It comes from the Latin, Latin 101, in, carne, flesh. Carnivores are flesh eaters. When Jesus came into the world, he came in real flesh. He wasn't imagined. The church very early on in its life, in the first three or four centuries, dismissed with the theological heresy that Jesus only appeared to be truly human. The church wrestled for 300 years to affirm that what John wrote in the first chapter of his gospel really is true. The Word, the eternal Word, became flesh, real and true, carne, flesh. And he dwelt among us. And John says in his first letter, in the first verse of the first chapter of his first letter, that they saw it, they beheld it, they handled it with their hands, they touched the Word who became flesh and who dwelt among us. Real flesh Jesus took to himself. And here's another thing. Another thing that we remember as we celebrate this Advent, this coming of the eternal Word of God into this world and taking upon himself a nature like yours, real flesh. Here's the other thing that we think about. We don't disconnect this Christmas season, this Advent, from what follows it. We don't disconnect the coming of Christ into the world from the life that was lived subsequent to that birth, a life of real obedience, a life lived for those who have been disobedient, a life lived for those who have broken the law, A life lived in faithfulness to the law, under the law. An entire life in which this one who is born in the flesh loves and lives obedience to the Father every moment of every day of his life for 30 plus years. And we don't disconnect this life that was lived from the death that was died, a birth, a life, and a death. And the death we know, I trust, I hope, I pray, we know that that death was a death bearing the judgment of God in behalf of those who had broken the law of God, who had been disobedient to the law of God, Bearing God's judgment so that they who trust in him, who really do come to this Jesus, would be free from the threat of a real judgment. And we don't disconnect the death that was died. If it's just a birth and just a life and just a death, it's no different from what has happened to everybody who has ever lived. It's not different from what will happen to each one of us in this room. A birth, a life, a death, a burial in a grave. But we don't disconnect all of that from a real resurrection. 
The only reason we do what we do tonight and tomorrow in giving gifts and all of this celebration is because down the corridor of history, from the moment of that birth, there is a resurrection, a real coming back to life of the one who died and he lives never to die again. We don't disconnect this first advent from the life that followed the birth, from the death that died at the end of that life, and from the resurrection that is a real and true bodily resurrection subsequent to that death and burial. And here's the other thing that we don't disconnect all of this from. We don't disconnect it from the real bodily ascension of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or contemplated it, but Jesus is somewhere, bodily. I don't know how that works. As I read through the Gospels, I don't understand how he appears in rooms. I don't know how he gets from Jerusalem to Galilee in a matter of minutes or seconds. I don't know how that works. But the body of Jesus, the real physical material body of Jesus is raised and is somewhere. The wonderful old Scottish theologian whose name I'd not heard of before reading this article that I've referred to, John Duncan, writes this in reflecting upon the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The dust of the earth is on the throne of the majesty on high. The dust of the earth. The real and true humanity of Jesus the real and true glorified, transformed flesh of Jesus, the dust of the earth is enthroned as the majesty on high. And the ascension tells us then this last thing. The ascension tells us that there is more. Jesus, the ruling and reigning king, is going to return. He is going to come back. It's been so interesting to me over this Advent. I don't know why it's been so more evident to me this Advent than previous Advents, but it's been so interesting to me as we sing these carols, these Christmas hymns that woven into the texts of these hymns again and again and again and again are references not only to the first advent, the coming of Jesus in weakness and frailty, a baby born in a stable, laid in a manger, in cloth rags, but woven into the texts and the fabric of these hymns are these references to his return, his glorious appearing. This Advent season, we reflect not just upon a baby and the wonder of the incarnation, but we are propelled into the future to consider his second Advent, that he is coming again. He is returning. And when he returns, what will happen? What will happen? It's a passage in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 19, verses 27 to 29, it's after, this is fascinating, it's after the rich young man has come to Jesus and said to him, what what good must I do to have eternal life? What thing must I do to earn eternal life? A lot of 
older pastors and scholars who believe that rich young man was actually the Apostle Paul. Some compelling reasons to think that that might be the case. And after this rich young man faces faces the significance of what it is to follow Jesus, Jesus speaks to him and says, you've done all of these things, but there's one thing left for you to do. Sell everything you have. Part with your riches and come and follow me. And he went away sad because he was a man of much wealth. And Peter watches this. He watches this exchange between Jesus and this rich man, this man who possesses everything the world has to offer. Everything. Prestige, riches, all of the things that we chase so hard after. Peter watches this exchange between Jesus and this rich young man, and as he watches him walk away, Jesus looks at Peter and the rest and says, with man, it is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Even rich people can humble themselves and enter the kingdom of God. And then Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? What then will we have? And Jesus, in his response to Peter, uses a word that appears only two times in the whole of the New Testament. It occurs one time in Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 3 and verse 5, and it appears here in Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, I'll tell you what you have, and I'll tell you what you will have. Truly I say to you, in the regeneration, in the regeneration, the ESV has in the new world, but literally the, world, the word is regeneration, in the renewal, in the restoration, in the reconstitution that is to come. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. You will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And here's the payoff, Peter. Here's the punchline. Here's what you get. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. That little word, regeneration, is so big. Because what Jesus is promising Peter is an eternal life in a world set free. Set free from the plagues sickness and old age and death and fear and doubt. He promises him an eternal life in a world transformed, renewed, reconstituted. 
Several months ago, I had a conversation with a friend, a fairly new friend. We were riding together here in beautiful Indian River County. And we passed by some beautiful condominiums overlooking, overlooking the Indian River, overlooking the ocean. And he said, if I make it to 80, what I want to do is buy a third or fourth floor condominium so that I can sit on a balcony, sip wine, and watch as my life comes to an end. Somehow, some way, I'm going to say to my friend, what, what if all of this, all of the best that you've tasted, that you've seen, that you've experienced physically, materially, what if all of this is just an appetizer? Just an appetizer. Wetting your appetite for an eternity of joy and pleasure in a real, physical, reconstituted universe given to you as a gift from your Father because of what Jesus did on the cross. What if all of this is just an appetizer? Here's what this article says in reflecting upon this. The incarnation is like a billboard standing in the middle of history, forcing us to look backward to a commitment God made to his creation and forward to the fulfillment of that commitment when the dead will be raised, the bodies of God's people glorified, and the earth under our feet purified from its fallen and cursed condition and made completely new. The incarnation is like a billboard standing in the middle of history, forcing us to look back and constraining us to look ahead. What did Jesus come for? He came. He came. Not only for me, his son. He came to restore the whole creation to a condition of beauty and glory so that he might give it to his people as a gift for them to enjoy forever. As a good friend of mine says as he finishes just about every sermon, now you think about that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for this spectacular thing that you have done. Not only coming to save a people from sin, but to free the whole creation and regenerate it, renew it, restore it, and free it 
from the curse under which it labors. Oh God, to contemplate a beauty we have only seen glimpses of. Oh, to contemplate savoring in ways we have only begun to taste. Oh, to contemplate laughing and dancing and singing in ways that we have only begun to experience. I pray for each one here that by this truth of your word, their hearts would be lifted up to consider these things. Lord, to do what Mary did, to treasure up all these things in our hearts for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us pray together. O God, you make us glad by the yearly festival of the birth 
of Your only Son, Jesus Christ. Grant that we, who joyfully receive Him as our Redeemer, may with sure confidence behold Him when He comes to be our Judge. And as we have known Him to be the light of the world, so may we enjoy Him perfectly in the new heaven and earth, where with You and the Holy Spirit He lives and reigns in glory everlasting. Amen. For the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, let us give thanks to the Lord. We praise You, Lord Christ. For His life of perfect obedience that secured our righteousness, let us give thanks to the Lord. We praise You, Lord Christ. For the one full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice of Himself for the sins of His people, let us give thanks to the Lord. We praise You, Lord Christ. For His resurrection, ascension, reign, and promised return, let us give thanks to the Lord. We praise You, Lord Christ. And for the gospel of grace, that assures us that we are forgiven by His blood, accepted because of His righteousness, and made children by adoption, let us give thanks to the Lord. We praise You, Lord Christ. Oh 